One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 11th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. 13 women and 14 men will make up the next European Commission if the nominees are ratified by the European Parliament. The President-elect Ursula von der Leyen named her preferred commissioners yesterday, saying each of them will lose their nationality when they take office. You are Europeans first, von der Leyen said. You are no longer representatives or messengers from your country's decisions will be arrived at in the College of Commissioners. The Irish Commissioner Phil Hogan said he is very pleased to have been nominated Commissioner-designate for EU trade in the next European Commission. The Taoiseach said that while Commissioner Hogan will of course work for Europe as a whole, it is a definite advantage to have an Irish person in charge of this crucial brief over the next five years. He will take the lead on the EU's post-Brexit trade deal with the UK as well as Mercosur and the EU's trading relations with India, the US and with China. And there have been questions from the UK as well about the next EU trade commissioner being Irish. ITV's James Mates spelled it out at a press conference with President-elect von der Leyen. Is your decision to appoint the uh, Irish Commissioner to the Trade Portfolio, a message to the United Kingdom of what to expect were they to be trying uh, to negotiate a free trade agreement after a no-deal Brexit? Um, I know Phil Hogan as an excellent, very fair uh, negotiator. And this is what I expect of him as a Trade Commissioner. He will be fair, but... uh, Determined, the Brexit, should it happen, is not the end of something, but it's the beginning of our future relationship. Mairead McGuinness Finnegale, MEP and First Vice President of the European Parliament, is on the line with us. A very good morning to you, Mairead, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, do you believe that Phil Hogan will be fair, or will he be batting for Ireland? Well, good morning, Michael. I think Phil Hogan, we know Phil Hogan, he is fair, but he's also firm. And I think that his experience of five years in the agriculture portfolio and his political background will stand him well in the trade uh, portfolio. I know we're focusing on the UK because clearly Brexit will require us to have a new relationship, a new trading relationship with the United Kingdom. But there are many other places around the world where the European Union is very keen 
to um, do trade deals. Uh, Phil Hogan has already been involved in these. So I think he's well placed. And, and I know I uh, did an interview with uh, James Mates on this point. And I made the case that, you know, the negotiations have been difficult for the United Kingdom thus far. And we haven't even got an agreement that they're prepared to ratify. Mm. If we get over this difficulty... The trade talks will not be easy because, as I understand it, the United Kingdom will want uh, to keep trading. But, for example, on fishing, they'll want uh, European boats out of their waters. So I think you do need somebody with long experience in people and politics and dealing. Well, James Mates is an experienced reporter. And I watched uh, some of the interview that you did with ITV. And he he was putting the point to you that uh, Mr. Hogan has already come to a a conclusion about some of the key players in the Brexit negotiations, the people who may end up having to do some sort of a a deal through him with Europe. Uh, And he described uh, three stooges as Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Can he be impartial using that kind of language in the past? Well, I think his language has been well matched on the other side. And, you know, when it gets to the stage of trade negotiations, personalities and words used in the past will not come inside the door because these will be about uh, making sure that our businesses and our people and jobs are protected. And I think that Phil Hogan, we know his style. Um, Some don't particularly take to that style of politics, but he is true to what he is. He speaks it and says it and uses language that is quite firm and tough. But I think on the UK side, we have also heard rhetoric which has been very unpleasant. Uh, But I have to say that the British Prime Minister in Dublin this week was a very important step. I thought it was a positive engagement. And the Taoiseach was also very firm, but fair, in terms of our relationship with the UK going forward, our need to insist that the European Union withdrawal agreement it cannot be bettered, and if it can be bettered by the United Kingdom coming up with proposals, we need to see those proposals. But around that, there is absolutely no clarity or indeed certainty. When the Taoiseach said it's a definite advantage to have an Irish person in charge of this crucial brief, uh, the role of uh, trade on behalf of the EU, what did he mean by that, do you think? Well, I think what he means is that Ireland is a trading nation, And clearly our first port of call on trade, we have always had a strong relationship within the European Union with the United Kingdom. However, Ireland also trades globally and Phil Hogan will understand the importance of our export business. So I think that the Commission President was very clear that these nominees to very high profile jobs and very responsible jobs, they have their nationality, but they're if you like, responsibility is to the European Union as a whole. But if you talk to any other commission nominee from other member states, you don't lose your identity by becoming a commissioner. Um, It does add to your experience. And I think that when the Taoiseach spoke uh, those words, he was referring to that fact, that it does help to have somebody uh, from Ireland in a position to understand how important trade and commerce is and exports are to the Irish economy and to have had political experience and to understand the complexities. And I think we're going to Mm. see very difficult issues. We will need to see some coherence on trade policy with climate action. And already we know that around the Amazon fires and the Mercosur deal, there has been a great deal of anxiety. So I think that Phil Hogan's portfolio, there's always the, the glow after the appointment and we wish him every success in a very difficult role. But it will not be an easy portfolio to carry. And I think he has broad 
good enough shoulders to carry this really important job. I, I think that his move from agriculture is probably something that uh, I'm, I'm, you know, concerned about because he knows mm-hmm. that portfolio particularly well and, and we are in the middle of very complex... And I do want to ask you about that in a, a, a moment, uh, but if we could stick with uh, his next role, assuming he becomes uh, the Trade Commissioner, if the Taoiseach is right in saying that it's a definite advantage, assumably, for the Irish to have an Irish person in that role, uh, could you counter that by saying it's a definite disadvantage for the British? No, you couldn't counter it like that. And again, I go back to the point, the British are negotiators of long-standing, so they will be well able, as we will be able with the team led by uh, Commissioner Hogan, to deal with uh, the issues. And remember, we're in a very difficult place with Brexit Mm. at the moment. You and I are talking about a future that we don't know will evolve. We hope we get to that place where we sit down as as partners and can work out a good relationship. Can can it be an advantage for the Irish if it's not a disadvantage for the British? Well, I think the words that you're playing with are, you know, you can put all of those proposals forward. Uh, to be mm. frank, well, my the, the concern T-shirt's is not words, with, you know. Yeah, well, mm. well, let me just finish the point, mm. please. My concern is not with how it's viewed in the United Kingdom. My concern is that the um, sensitivities for Ireland and the European Union in trade negotiations are handled by somebody who understands how important it is for us to get a trade deal with the United Kingdom, but not to concede on issues that are important to us. Clearly, the UK may have a different view, but, you know, the UK are not soft when it comes to negotiating. We know that from our past and indeed the current impasse. So I wouldn't worry, Michael, if I were you, about the United Kingdom. They're well fit to take on their own challenges. My concern and my focus is on making sure that when we come to reach a trade agreement with the United Kingdom, that Irish and European interests are to the fore. And I think there's no better person to defend those than Phil Hogan. OK. Uh, well, he'll remain as uh, the Agriculture Commissioner up to uh, the uh, end of October, isn't it? Uh, because he'll assume his new yeah. role, assuming that he is ratified on the 1st of November. Uh, should he be on a, a plane uh, to Dublin now and banging heads together because uh, we're looking at the prospect of factories closing down already, 3,000 workers temporarily laid off uh, and farmers uh, working for less than nothing. I'm really sorry, Mike, there's some noise in the background here. Um, OK, I'm sure. I'm just, I'm, I'm just asking you if Phil Hogan should uh, come home to intervene in the beef crisis here. He shouldn't come home to intervene in the beef crisis, but I've been watching this uh, unfold over the summer and I think this is um, getting to an Armageddon situation where... Farmers are deeply frustrated. They, farm organisations are not leading these protests, so it's very difficult to negotiate with uh, individuals, but I understand their particular concerns. I called last week uh, and have got an agreement that this issue will be on the agenda of the Agriculture Committee. We need a forensic look at how the beef industry, not just in Ireland, but across Europe, is structured. Mm. I think in Ireland there are particular challenges because farmers and the beef factories have never had a good relationship. Perhaps at times when the price is high, there's no problem. But now as prices plummet and there are difficulties in the beef market. So I think Phil Hogan, and this is what I have asked him to do, is to give us an accurate assessment of the European beef market because while we sell beef in Ireland and we consume our own beef, it is a tiny proportion of the output that we have. So what happens in Europe and globally on beef impacts on Irish farmers. And I think it's been the the, the historic, um, if you like, awful relationships that have existed between farmers and factories that have brought us to this place. And I know that Michael Creed has worked night and day to try and get the industry and farmers around the table. And we need to do that very quickly because, of course, 
you know, farmers are protesting for their future. But if the industry shuts down, that will really bring, I suppose, a situation that none of us want to see where jobs mm. will be lost and where there is no output. For but, but we're getting to a point of no return, are we not? I mean, the industry is shutting down. Well, I think that, I, I hope we're not getting to that point, Michael, but I have to say that following it from, from Brussels, we are in a very difficult situation. I'll be at the Fine Gael thinking in Cork and I'll be talking to the Taoiseach and indeed Minister Cree directly on these issues to see what we can do. There's a group of farmers coming into the Parliament this morning mm. and I will be talking to them as well to try and catch the mood. But I think it's a question of, um, you know, people need to come off their high horses in, in the sense that okay. the meat industry is angry, farmers are angry, and anger isn't a policy. It's a route to disaster. I, and we I, need to find a way forward. I, I, I need to let you off the line. Uh, but before you go, can you explain to us why the commissioner should not intervene uh, and uh, who else can solve a, a crisis of uh, this nature if uh, the problem, the root of the problem is pricing and agreeing a minimum pricing and under European law uh, it's not possible to do that? Well, look, we've passed under my direction um, new legislation on unfair trading practices. And one of the proposals, and I wrote to the ministers responsible as this is being implemented, is that the Competition Authority in Ireland, they don't feel they're fit to implement this legislation. They've called for an independent regulator for the food chain. I've called for that. And Commissioner Hogan is aware of my view. When you say that he should fly home and intervene, he has a role across all of Europe. He knows what's happening in Ireland and he is aware of the proposals that I've put forward. So he will be coming with his team to our committee to talk about this issue. The solution to the problem, the immediate impasse where farmers are deeply frustrated and are protesting and factories are reacting in the way they are, is in Ireland and around the table. And we were at that place. We need to find a way back to that where, you know, the dignity of the farming community, which, you know, they feel very trodden upon at the moment. They feel their future uh, is literally being wiped out. And we need to acknowledge that. And at the same time, we know that the beef industry has been very profitable uh, in the past. So, you know, we have to deal with these realities. And there is a lot of emotion around this. But we have to find a way forward. And Phil Hogan will contribute doing that with his work at EU level. Okay, and we'll hear more about uh, this ongoing crisis later in the programme, but we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Good morning to you, Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael MEP and First Vice President of the European Parliament. Michael Michael Reid on on LMFM. Now, we'll stay with Phil Hogan for a moment. As you know, he's about to become uh, the next uh, Trade Commissioner for Europe. Currently, he's uh, the Agriculture Commissioner. It's been an important role and uh, if he becomes the Trade Commissioner, Commissioner, as expected, he'll have a very important role in terms of Brexit and how Europe negotiates a deal, if it ever negotiates a deal with the United Kingdom. Farmers here are in crisis, as you know, over beef prices. Uh, but there's also a lot of concerns about the Mercosur deal, which uh, Mr. Hogan has had a significant role in as the Agriculture Commissioner. But he has warned to the farmers here. Uh, to be careful uh, about what they are prioritising as their biggest concern because he has said that the biggest concern should be a no-deal Brexit. And we'll hear now what Mr Hogan has said uh, about uh, Europe's uh, commitment to protecting farmers in such a scenario. Today we are talking about a no-deal scenario, in which case what we can say with certainty is that there will be significant disruption to certain agricultural markets. 
And confidence in that knowledge, and if left unchecked, we have to come to the conclusion that the European Commission has a legal obligation to intervene, and we will. I anticipate a mix of measures designed to suit particular circumstances and products. A mix of some or all of public intervention, private storage aid, withdrawal schemes and targeted aid will form the package of support. In addition to these measures, we are also looking at state aid rules, in which case it will be for the member state to provide support. Much of the food that is exported to the UK is fresh food and therefore perishable, with little or no scope for delays at ports. So just because tariffs may not be applied, we cannot underestimate or indeed assume that such products will not be caught up in several logistical disruptions, particularly in the early weeks. In the case of trade to or through the United Kingdom, we have noted their stated intention to maintain business as usual, but the question has to be asked just how can this be achieved? I want to conclude by saying that I am confident that our planning is on track to enable us to respond effectively and quickly to Brexit, and particularly to a no-deal Brexit. We will continue to refine our contingency plans in the light of the continuing analysis and engagement with Member States, our engagement with stakeholders, my colleagues with the Commission, but also with the evolving political situation in the United Kingdom. The Agriculture Commissioner, as uh, things stand, Phil Hogan, speaking there about uh, the prospect of uh, no-deal Brexit, something that is of concern to farmers, obviously, but of concern to an awful lot of people, and indeed an awful lot of people, not just uh, across Europe, but more importantly on this island, north and south of uh, this island in particular, because of uh, the threat to the peace process. We've seen a lot of violent incidents recently, including the most recent discovery in a house in uh, Cregan Heights area of of Derry uh, when a suspicious object was found uh, said to be a bomb and police officers came under fire as you've been watching the scenes on television some 40 petrol bombs were fired at police officers in scenes uh, that really were reminiscent of uh, the 1970s and it comes on foot of uh, the discovery of another bomb, a mortar bomb that was recovered in uh, Straban on Saturday. We'll hear now uh, some of what uh, the Assistant Chief Constable Mark Hamilton had to say to reporters about the discovery of this bomb. A, a suspect vehicle, and we looked into that vehicle, we saw a suspect device, and that triggered then a full clearance operation. At 4 a.m. this morning, the bomb disposal officer confirmed that a command wire initiated device had been located and made safe uh, in, in Craigan Heights. And, uh, this device was packed with commercial explosives. It's a small enough device in, inside, but actually the explosion that would have created would have been very significant. And certainly in our estimation, this explosion would have definitely would have killed people standing near it, probably would have wounded a lot of other people and would have had a very significant blast in that area. Um, my assessment is the likelihood that that device was there to be used at some point against a police patrol in Craigan. Uh, we believe that the new IRA were behind this, we believe that the new IRA want to drive policing out of Craigan. We believe that they want to deny the people of Craigan the right to phone the police about the most ordinary things that anyone in our society should have the right to phone the police about, be it domestic violence, sexual abuse, burglary, car crime. That's why we're policing Craigan. Um, but the new IRA want to deny this to the people of Craigan. So this device, you believe, is there to murder police officers. Unfortunately, it's the second and two incidents across the weekend and we've seen two incidents previously in other parts of Northern Ireland in recent times. There is a concerted effort at the minute to murder your police officers uh, in your communities to stop them assisting you. So it's a big effort from our point of view to try and stop that happening. 
not just to stop the terrorism, but primarily to promote a community policing response in Northern Ireland. A concerted effort to, to kill police officers in Northern Ireland uh, return to the bad old days. Let's hope not. And uh, indeed, as I said earlier on, uh, the concerns are that that will be the case in the no-deal scenario if uh, Brexit negotiations are not successful. The solution is to reach a deal to come to some sort of compromise and uh, the idea now is to find a deal through a Northern Ireland only backstop instead of what is currently being proposed which is a UK wide backstop. This would effectively see a border in the Irish Sea uh, and we'll hear now the reaction to such a scenario from Nigel Dodds of the DUP speaking in Westminster the other day. And again we will continue to work with Her Majesty's Government on that issue, to achieve a deal, to achieve an outcome in which people can be satisfied that the objectives of leaving the European Union in a sensible way that works for the whole of the United Kingdom is achieved, one that doesn't undermine the economic integrity or the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. When people talk about respect for the Belfast Agreement, that works two ways. Not only does it work in terms of a north-south border, but it must not implement an east-west border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. I am very glad that the government has recognised, which is reflected in the letter to Donald Tusk that the Prime Minister sent in August, that not only is the backstop anti-democratic in the sense that laws will be made for Northern Ireland over which Stormont, even if restored, would have no say, nor would anyone here have any say. Northern Ireland would be obliged to accept whatever was handed down in law by the European Commission to the European Council through appropriate procedures. Not only is it anti-democratic, but it is also contrary to the basis of the Belfast Agreement, which is the consent of both communities, that whilst we respect the institutions north-south, you cannot undermine the position that unionists adhere to, which is that we have a single market within the United Kingdom where most of our trade is done. So we simply ask for a fair and balanced deal. An anti-democratic Northern Ireland only backstop contrary to the basis of the Good Friday Agreement. Strong views there articulated by the DUP's Nigel Dodds. Now, Wednesday morning, that means uh, the local newspapers have been published. They're in your shops. We have them in the studio with us. Marie Kearns is in the studio with us. And we'll take a look at what's on the front pages of uh, the papers uh, this week. We'll begin in Dundalk with uh, the Democrat. And they're reporting on the price of progress and how business is being uh, affected by rejuvenation works. That's right, Michael. Uh, the impact of the ongoing St. Nicholas quarter rejuvenation works in the Church Street area of Dundalk is making the headlines there. Uh, Donard McCabe is reporting that it's having a detrimental effect on businesses in the area. Uh, has an interview with John Kennedy, a local trader of Ma Brady's restaurant on Church Street. And he was saying that lunchtime last Monday, they would nearly more staff in the restaurant than they had customers and it's having having a dreadful impact. Okay, the Dundalk leader then reporting on uh, the disappointment felt by students and their parents uh, who want to go to a Gale school. That's right, that's the story we've been covering extensively uh, regarding the decision to no longer teach exclusively through Irish. That makes the front page story inside. There's a bit of good news. They're highlighting the fact that Loud County Council have won four green flags for various parks around the county. Okay, Irene White 
uh, remembered uh, through uh, the story uh, that features on uh, the front page of the Argus and Dundalk. That's right, Michael. Um, apostles of evil. Ken vows to hunt apostles of evil. That's the headline of the Argus and the Ken is the heartbroken husband of Andal Cassian. And in an interview with Margaret Roddy a month after his wife's death, Ken has pledged to keep his promise to ensure that all those involved in the brutal murder of Anne's only sister Irene White are brought to justice. He says that now he is no longer caring for Anne who battled cancer for many years. He has time to fulfil her dying wish to see those described as the, the, the apostles of evil behind bars. Okay, a plea from uh, the pulpit uh, to end uh, the ongoing criminal feud in Drogheda. Makes for the front page uh, story of the Drogheda Independent this week. That's right. End this for the sake of our kids is the page one, one headline. And the plea has been made uh, by the parish priest of the Holy Family uh, Church in Ballsgrove, Father Phil Gaffney. Uh, he made it at the funeral last week, Michael, of Drogheda man Keith Brannigan, who was shot dead in Clarehead. And the parish priest told more, more mourners at the funeral that the violence needed to end as it was impacting greatly on children within the community. And he further described the killing as random, cruel and meaningless and asked for it all to end before more lives were lost in the town. OK, the Meath Chronicle then leads uh, this week uh, with the beef crisis. Yes, that's right. Uh, the papers reported that yesterday morning angry farmers began a blockade at Dawn Meats at Bow Park at 4am, claiming that management there had broken a promise not to process any more cattle until the current issue was resolved. Inside the paper on page 12, Michael, there's a story that could resonate with many listeners. It's about uh, Brian Clark from Dunshockland. He has started a local support group uh, having suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder since he was a child so maybe they might have a look at that if they're okay, interested. Very good. Alright, uh, some interesting stories there, great variety of stories in fact across uh, the papers uh, which people may want to comment on and uh, they can call you now because you'll be back in a few indeed. minutes with some of those comments, uh, should we get any, that's if uh, you want to comment on those stories in the papers if there's something else you've been hearing or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us you can ring Marie or Maggie now, our number is 1850 Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, CyberSafe Ireland publishes its annual report uh, this week and uh, alongside it, a survey of almost 4,000 children and how they use the internet, how often they use their internet, and how often they're on their phone. Alex Cooney, Chief Executive Officer of CyberSafe Ireland, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Alex, and thanks for joining us. I suppose most people at this stage uh, have heard uh, the headlines from your survey, and children are spending a a lot of time on their phone, 61 days out of a year online. Uh, but is it always a bad thing? No, no, not at all. I think what we were trying to do with that uh, was actually gauge just how much, and, and I'd just like to say mm. it's 12%. So 12% of the children that we surveyed were spending four plus hours every day online. Mm, mm. And I think, you know, by any standard, four, four hours uh, or for more than four hours in a day for a child in that, in that age group, so eight to 13, is a lot. Um, but we wanted to kind of, I suppose, really examine what the ramifications of that were, like how, how much time actually was that. Um, no, of course, not all time spent online mm. is bad. We, we would absolutely welcome uh, children uh, being given the opportunity to access the online world, um, you know, for, it, for, for the right reasons, you mm. know, whether it's for uh, educational purposes. My own daughter, for example, does some of her homework online. She uses it for research. Obviously, great fun can be had with gaming and socializing mm. online. 
But obviously there have to be limits. There have and, uh, to be boundaries. I, I take it the older they are, the longer they spend online uh, because uh, that figure of 12% increases to 15% uh, for 12-year-olds. Uh, and uh, if you were to survey older than that, you'd probably find uh, that the percentage are, are, are spending uh, as long on the internet or on their phone. But uh, as you say, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. This is the world that they live in to a large extent, whilst on the other hand, there are reasons uh, to be concerned and to be mindful of them. Yeah, I think we have to, I mean, what is too much? You know, like we, yeah. the, we, what we would always say, it's, it's, the, it's best to focus on what they're doing online, what they're being exposed to online, who they're talking to online, rather than, you know, how long they're online. It's the quality over the quantity. But I think by anyone's measure, four hours a day for a for a primary school age child mm. is, is a lot of time online. Yeah, yeah I suppose it, it would be a, a lot of time in front of any screen, whether that's a television screen or the screen on their right. phone or a computer. Right. Uh, and what are they doing online then? Uh, they're watching videos. YouTube is extremely popular with this age group. Uh, also, a, a video sharing platform called TikTok, which is, is sharing music videos. Um, they love gaming, obviously. That there were high numbers of children that we surveyed that were gaming. Um, and uh, a lot of them are also on social media. So about 60% of the children that we surveyed were on social media. Almost half of the eight-year-olds that we surveyed were on social media. So that's also a very popular pastime. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're very active online. I mean, sometimes it's also for research or educational purposes, but largely they're, they're having fun and they, they really love it. And, and, and sometimes when they're gaming, they're playing games uh, that uh, they should be too young to be playing. Absolutely. So games have PEGI ratings, which gives a, you know, a parent's an indication of, of the appropriateness of that game. So we found that overall 29% of the children that we surveyed were playing over 18's games, which is a very high number. But actually, when you break that down uh, by gender, we found that it was, it was boys, a high proportion of boys. So 47% of the boys overall were playing over 18's games versus a, a fairly small percentage of girls, just 12%. 36% of eight-year-old boys were playing over 18's games. And we have to remember that the content of these games are really not appropriate for children Mm. in this age group. Highly sexual, highly violent content. Uh, So we'd really encourage parents, you know, to explore what what games that their their children uh, want to play. Look, there's some great advice out there. Common Sense Media mm. is, a, is a very good website that, that gives a breakdown of different games and, and provides a, a parent and child overview of that game, you know, so it will give yeah. you a sense mm. of whether it is uh, appropriate for your child. Um, so do, and webwise.ie uh, is, is another good source of information, as, as of course is our website, cybersafeireland.org. So there are really good places to, to find out more information. Okay, but, but if they are underage, how, how are they gaining access to these sites? How are they allowed to use these sites? Do they not have to prove their age? No, no, they don't. I mean, if we look at social media, most social media sites, in fact, all of the social media sites, the most popular ones, um, have a minimum age restriction of at least 13. Some of them 16. WhatsApp has a minimum age restriction of of 16. Uh, And that's why you surveyed children under the age of 13 and 60% of them are on social media. 60% of them are on social media. Yeah, Mm. it it, it is all too easy. We've explored this. We've we've done some research around it. It is all too easy for a child, an underage child, to sign up to these services. Despite all the debate that we had last year, I don't know if you remember, but Mm. around the digital age of consent, which we eventually set at 16 in Ireland, um, but it's, it's, it's largely meaningless uh, in practice, as you can see from, from this data. And, and if almost half of eight-year-olds are, are on social media and they should be 13 or older, uh, is it that they're going on and pretending that they're 13? Do they fill out forms claiming to be 13? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And some of that will be with parental consent. Uh, it's not okay. all behind mm-hmm. parents' backs. Um, you know, parents, parents are agreeing to this. They're coming under fierce pressure from their children to be allowed to sign up to, to the different apps um, or to be allowed to play the, to, you know, a, a particular game. So it, it's, it's really difficult for parents. And I think what we need to see is parents coming together and, and having discussions around it and sort of discussing what, what, what is the best thing. And, and, you know, it's much easier to say no if you have if you know other parents in your child's peer group are also mm-hmm. saying no. But are they? Are any of the parents saying no? That conversation is happening. Yeah, but are any of the parents saying no? Yeah, some, of course, are some they? parents mm-hmm. are saying no. no yeah. you know, not all children are, are in this age category are, are active online. But as you can see from, from the data mm. that we've gathered, a large proportion of them are. Mm. Uh, most of them are, in actual fact. Uh, and uh, quite a high percentage of the children talking to strangers online. Yeah, we, we found that 43% of children were talking to strangers in some capacity. And about a third of those, so 33%, were talking to, to strangers either every day or um, every week, at least every week. So I think it, that was something that was, was notable. Now, I do want to say that not mm. every instance of, of a child talking to a stranger online is, is sinister or, you know, or something to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. But we do want to, to encourage parents to really you know, explore who their kids are talking to and talk to them about who they're talking to online. You know, it, it's a really important that children are smart um, in, in terms of the judgments and choices that they're making online. And the, and the only way they can do that is if, if we support them to become smart and safe uh, online users. So we need to be having these conversations. You know, in what capacity are kids talking to children? What information are they, mm. uh, sorry, talking to strangers? What information are they giving away to people that they don't know? And what, so we, what is a stranger? Uh, I mean, do children know what a stranger is? Uh, is a stranger somebody that they've befriended through social media, that they talk to regularly and feel they have a, a relationship but have never met or, or is it it's somebody uh, that uh, has messaged them for the first time? A stranger is someone that they don't know in real life. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple But do um, children realise that? Mm. They do. Well, it's interesting because mm. when we, we go into the classroom, so we do um, sessions in primary schools with third and sixth class, mm. third to sixth class. And when we ask children about, you know, who they should be friends with online, they know. They know that, that, that they should be friends with only people they know in real life. But when you then tease it out a little bit more, mm. you know, it, it becomes a bit more fuzzy. So they wouldn't consider necessarily a follower to be a friend. Yeah. They may have followers they don't know. Mm. They don't put them in the same category. Or a friend of a friend. You know, a friend of a friend seems a lot closer, right, than a complete stranger. Yeah. So you're maybe a bit more trusting about accepting that. You know, what we need to teach kids is just to be really careful about who they're engaging with online and what they're sharing with, with people, well, especially I mean, people I, they don't know. I, I suppose another way of asking the question I was putting to you a moment ago is, uh, do you come across children who say, I don't talk to strangers online, but I have 5,000 Facebook friends? Yes, absolutely. Or, or, or more likely, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, YouTube yeah. followers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that. So that, mm. that they're, they're, they're like, no, I don't. But, uh, you know, the follower is different. And you have to look at the role models that children have. You know, they're, they're following the, the you know, YouTubers with millions of followers. And, of course, those YouTubers won't know the vast majority of their followers. So that's the role model they have. And, and when you look at career aspirations of children, and they've been studied on this, you know, this is, this is what children want to be. You know, they want to be the next YouTube sensation. Mm. They want to be the, yeah. the social media influencer. So, you know, they see these people with, with, who have millions of followers. And, and you know, so when we, we have this com- you know, in the, when we have this conversation in the class, mm. you'll often find kids saying, but I don't want to have, you know, fewer followers. Mm. You know, like, yeah. I, I, yeah. I want to keep yeah. my number of followers, you yeah. know? Well, well, these are the people that their parents would call rock stars or film stars or whatever. That's the equivalent. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the, it's the, the equivalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're icons, in other words. Okay, Alex, I have to leave it there. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Alex Cooney, Chief Executive Officer of CyberSafe Ireland. 
Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns is back with us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us uh, this morning. What have people been saying to you, Marie? Good bit of reaction already, Michael. People commenting uh, following your interview with Mairead McGuinness on a number of issues. Firstly, the beef uh, dispute. John was listening with great interest to Mairead McGuinness say the price of the beef is plummeting at the moment and he wants to know where are the prices plummeting because he hasn't seen any drop in prices in the supermarket or the butchers. If you go to a restaurant and order a steak, you're still paying 30 euro plus for it he says so where are these price drops Mairead because they are most certainly not being passed on to the consumer God expensive restaurants that he eats I'm just going to say, say yeah. I, I okay. like to say yeah. myself now mm. it's normally around the 25, 26 mm-hmm. <laughs> mark um, Paddy says uh, the meat industry representatives have no real intention of engaging in meaningful talks they have no interest in listening to the farmers concerns or addressing their pricing worries they are just interested and looking after their own interests. The performance by Meat Industry Ireland on television last night was a prime example of this. They will not listen and Paddy thinks they have no intention of going back to the talks. Okay, well they said they were willing to talk, they wanted to talk, uh, they were going to go into the talks uh, but uh, decided to to pull out of uh, the talks because uh, the blockades continued. And just staying with the beef for the moment, Michael, we'd uh, an email in yesterday following your uh, interview with Eamon Curley, wasn't it? Yes. Mm. Uh, of beef plans. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny says, uh, Michael, you showed great patience and reserve in your interview with Farmers Rep, Mr Curley. Are we to again allow special privilege and entitlement to the farming sector? The recession put hundreds of thousands out of work and closed many businesses and there was no government aid or subsidy for any of them. Yet the farmers now want the taxpayers to subsidise a business that makes no money except for some millionaires and is a major part of the damage to our environment and must be earmarked for closing down anyway. Most of these farmers have second jobs and income sources. This is the opportunity to properly reduce the national herd in accordance with climate protection agreements, says Danny. Okay, well, so far in uh, this crisis, I haven't heard uh, the call, the, the farmers call for taxpayer subsidies. Uh, they have been saying that they can't be expected to so- sell at below cost. Uh, but let's uh, continue on with that conversation. Peter McEnany, IFA Louth Livestock Chairman on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, uh, Peter, and thanks for joining us. And I understand uh, you're hearing from a, a lot of farmers, uh, but not particularly about the price that they're getting for beef, it's uh, the inability to sell it. They want to get into the factories. Yeah, that's right. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, more more farmers looking to get cattle killed than there is to join the picket lanes, you know. Why, why, why is that, do you think, given uh, what we've been hearing about uh, selling below cost? Well, the cattle is ready to go, you know. Ground conditions getting soft, the days are getting short, the nights are getting longer. Traditionally, this time of year, a lot of cattle comes off grass. Farmers need to get them cattle away, you know. They're ready to go. They're ready. They're market fit. Is it that they're willing to sell at a, a loss uh, rather than the greater loss that they face if they don't sell now? Well, like, when farmers sell cattle, that's their source of income. Like, farms have to be kept running. Bank loans have to be paid. The need income, the need to source money by selling cattle to do this, you know, like life mm. has to go on. 
No, I, I understand. I, I, what, what I don't understand is if, if farmers are, are selling at below the cost of production, uh, how is it that they want to sell at a loss? Uh, why is it that they want to sell at a, a loss? Is it that that loss that they would have to face into now would be less than the loss that they would face if they don't sell now because uh, they lose out on some of uh, the payments? Yeah, well, the, the the reality is, Michael, like that European beef price where it is, like there isn't going to be much of a rise at the minute, like, and you know you can you have to to get cattle sold, you have to get cattle moved, you know, the, the market fit, you can't hold them on the market fit, they have to go whether they're making it also or not, they have to go like that, you know. Mm. And people are starting to vent their frustration are they yeah yeah people is getting like farmers is getting very annoyed there's a backlog of cattle there to go through the system are they annoyed with the protesting farmers well to be in support of a price rise of course they would but at the end of the day until meat errant meet industry and and everyone gets around the table there's going to be nothing sorted on that like so IFA would be calling on meat industry to get around the table and get get these talks into motion and, and put pressure on the minister and local politicians to to make a call to get them talks in place Have you been speaking Peter with farmers who've been blocked from gaining access to factories? Yes And what position are they in now? Well, they are very anxious to, to, to get their cattle away. You know, that's that's their view. Like, the price is what it is. It's not, it's, it's, it's into law of making, but, like, it's costing farmers money every day to keep these cattle on fodder and meal bills and everything else is escalating. And they'll breach the 30-month rule, I take it, in some cases, uh, which will see them lose out on payments. That's right, yeah. That's right. They will they will lose out on on money when they go over thirty months, and because of the compact carbon in the spring, a lot of cattle is coming at thirty months now, and the timing's just a wee bit wrong for this, you know. Mm. Uh, and uh, if uh, the factories are shutting up shop, uh, it seems somewhat hopeless, does it not? Yeah. Well. That's what I'm saying. That's why we'd be calling on meat industry to get round the table and get talks in motion. Mm. What do you think of the position that Meat Industry Ireland took? We heard people there saying they had no intention of talking, uh, they don't want to talk, uh, they don't want to compromise uh, on price. Uh, the other side of the argument is that they were willing to talk, uh, but the illegal blockades continued. Uh, do you side with Meat Industry Ireland to, in that respect? Look, nothing, nothing's going to be sorted by not talking, like, you know. Mm. Talks need to take place. And any... But is Meat Industry Ireland right in your view to say we're not going to talk while those blockades continue? Well, I I just can't say, like, but I'd rather see them talk. My opinion would be that I'd like them to, to, to get into talk. Mm. And for the farmers to lift the blockades to let your members in to sell their cattle now uh, and to take them out of this situation? 
Sorry, Michael, just repeat that. You were telling us about farmers uh, who want to get into the factories. Uh, you'd, would you ask the protesting farmers to lift the blockades? Well, look, I would ask the protesting farmers to think of other farmers or fellow farmers on the ground that need to get cattle away. Mm. You know, and, and but it, it's it, it's like any strike, isn't it? If you break the strike, you lose the cause. Uh, and uh, I suppose uh, the farmers who are looking to get into the factories could be looked on as scabs. Well, every day they're holding them, they're losing money, like you know. And mm. I have far more farmers ringing me about what we're going to do to get stock away than mm. I have ringing to support the picket lines. Mm. And don't get me wrong, Peter, uh, I mean, I'm very much a- aware of how horrible that sounded, but that's the kind of conversation that we're having now because this is pitting farmer against farmer, isn't it? That's exactly what's happening, yeah. Yeah. And can you uh, tell us uh, what, what what that's doing to the farming community? Uh, if we can look on the industry as a, a community, uh, because uh, we'll see the community come together uh, next week uh, for the ploughing championship, uh, and it'll probably be a different occasion than ever before. Well, possibly, like, but you know, the timing's all wrong, and it's like a far bigger elephant in the room is Brexit. And, like, there's something like 35 or 36 working days left till the end of October. And you need to get cattle killed and get as much beef away before tariffs set in, if they do set in. Mm. You know, like, someone has to take a look at the timing of all this. Like, the minister's getting a free pass with, with Brexit when all this is going on as well. Like, an IFA would think that you're far better getting into talks about Brexit at the mm. minute than than beef price, you know? Yeah. Uh, am I right in thinking you sound despondent, Peter? Um, devoid of hope? Well, there's, uh, you know, it's, it's, as you said there yourself, farmers are divided on this and that's not a good place to be, you know, like there's, how does this get sorted? Like, you know, that's why I'd be just calling for talks to take place, to have to take place to, to, to get past this impasse. Okay. Listen, thanks for talking to us. Uh, appreciate your time and uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Peter McEnany is uh, the Livestock Chairman for the IFA in Louth. Now, let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the calls that have been coming to us. Uh, what else have you got there, Marie? I'll just have one mm. more, Michael, uh, on the beef uh, dispute and then mm. I have a couple of other ones if we have time. Uh, Thomas says that uh, the farming industry, he feels, is the backbone of this country and a hugely important part of what Ireland is, the fabric of Ireland. And we should treasure it and preserve it. There's no way he feels that farmers will be leaving their farms for so long to protest if they weren't suffering. However, on the other side of the mm. coin, he feels that they should pull back their protests now to enable the talks to take place because he believes there's going to be no winners in all of this if it continues. <laughs> It's a very, very complicated uh, situation that we're in. Uh, I think anybody listening to Peter McEnany uh, will be fully aware of that now. Uh, but thanks to everybody who has been in touch. Thanks uh, for bringing us uh, those comments as well this morning, Marie. And if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Why is it uh, that where you live and how wealthy your parents are will determine how well you will or will not do in school. This is a 
question that Fianna Fáil wants answered and it's education spokesperson Thomas Byrne who's a TD in Meath East joins us now. Is it a rhetorical question? Well, yeah, I think, I, I mean, look, I haven't seen this report published by the Higher Education Authority, but I don't think it's any surprise to anybody what the, the main findings appear to be as reported in the Irish Independent. Um, there's no doubt that socioeconomic status uh, has impacted uh, on, on people's progression through education, progression through careers. And I think I think there's a number of things that can be done to try and tackle that. First of all, the DESH programme was initiated by Fianna Fáil in 2006-2007 to give extra resources to schools um, in disadvantaged areas. Mm. Now, there's been some expansion of that in recent years, but very little, and we, we are looking for further expansion of that. What we're looking for in particular uh, would be that they, when class sizes were reduced a couple of years ago, they, they weren't given a, a corresponding reduction in the DESH schools. Like They always had a better class, class size, um, but they didn't get the benefit of the, the general decrease uh, this time. Uh, and we think that that has to happen. And that's something that we've been trying to, trying to focus on as well. Mm. A number of other things in the conference supply agreement, Michael, are directly related to this particular issue. Uh, and one is guidance counselling that we've mainly got fully restored back into schools now at this point. Uh, and that's about you know giving kids advice that they let's be frank that they may not be getting home, mm. or that the, the 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 experience at home may not be in the education system. But giving kids the opportunity and the encouragement, uh, and their parents as well, to empower the parents, give the confidence to them. Uh, to try and aim for the stars uh, for the children for but all. But uh, in terms of uh, second level education, you're talking uh, about choosing what subjects uh, to do for the leaving cert after the junior cert, or you know, when it comes to career no. guidance. No, no, well, I'm no, no, mm. I'm, I'm not. I mean, that's one one element of it, of mm. it obviously. Um, but it's 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 the general confidence uh, that people should have, in in the sense that they they feel that they are right for particular college courses or. That instilling in them that may not just be there, or the confidence mm. may not be there. So guidance counselling is a bit. Is a bit I know, but, uh, but, but but that that comes really uh, a third year, doesn't it? No, I mean it's that, that that's that's a whole uh, that's a whole thing throughout school. I mean the guidance counsellor is available. I think it's crucially important, particularly. I mean, look, there are, there are mm. families out there who, when when guidance counselling was effectively abolished as, as mm. being mandatory in schools, lots of parents were able to pay for it. Mm. Outside, the poorer kids from the lower socioeconomic backgrounds were not able to pay for guidance counselling. Yeah, uh, uh, really but the, but the, the, that's what it comes down to. It, it, it's ability to pay. It's having money. It's coming from a rich family. Uh, the yep. rich do better, and they do better for uh, a number of reasons. Uh, don't mean to discount what you're saying completely, but uh, they're small in the overall scheme of, of things when it comes to having food in your belly and a comfortable bed uh, at night and the comforts uh, of life, maybe being driven to school. Uh, and then uh, if you're not doing well on the lovely computer that you have uh, to do uh, your studies on, uh, you can go and get grinds uh, at whatever cost. Yeah, the grinds is an issue, and look, we'll never be able to um, eliminate them. People are always going to be able to pay for them, but I suppose what we can do is make sure that the schools are fully resourced to teach the curriculum, uh, and that they should be really, that there shouldn't be any necessity for grinds, but I suppose there is a... Parents, look, I mean, I don't begrudge parents who want to do the best for their mm. children, they're going to do that. But another item we've got in terms of affordability, um, for example, uh, uh, maintenance grants for postgraduate courses were abolished by Rory Quinn, They've come back now as part of the conference of five That's just another practical step that we've taken because we've been focused on this issue. That's something that simply was no opportunity uh, for poorer families there for a few years to go on to do postgraduate courses. 
if they wanted to become a doctor, if they wanted to mm. become a teacher through the Master in Education. There was no support whatsoever for the poorest families. That's back now directly because of the Conference Supply Agreement. And I see Fine Gael this week in their, their document about Fianna Fáil allegedly spending money are actually criticising us for that. They're criticising us for guidance counselling. They're criticising us for looking for more uh, resources for for, for, for families, particularly those with special needs. So, so they're practical things that actually help people, you know, I suppose, move on and progress in society. Uh, and that's certainly something that we support, that there should be aspiration there, that people should be able to go into school, no matter what background they're from, and say, yes, I'm going to be a doctor because I'm going to be able to be a doctor. It's a level playing field, whatever we say about the CAO point system, mm. it, it is level. Um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to try that but it is, does require investment in the poor schools it requires actually an updating the list of where they are because th- th- it hasn't really been done properly uh, in the last number of years um, and it requires making sure that people have full support and, and, and looking at extra resources for those poorer schools to ensure that everybody gets uh, to reach their full potential but I'm really glad this, this report is coming out because yeah. look at we kind of all know this, but it's it's, it's really useful when it has a, a research uh, basis behind it. Uh, uh, how big a factor do you think grinds are in children doing well? Well, quite frankly, I'm not sure that anyone has ever researched it. Um, mm. But I mean, it's uh, impossible I, to compete against somebody who's taking grinds if you're not taking them. I, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's the case. I think probably there's a lot of pressure for people uh, to to get grinds because I feel somebody else is getting grinds I mean mm. quite frankly when I was in college as a sideline I gave grinds uh, to kids and oh, right. quite frankly mm. some, some of them didn't need them mm. did you uh, did you pay parents, tax? in college no when, when, when you were giving the grinds in college yeah. uh, you can be absolutely assured all my tax affairs were in order mm. uh, and it certainly wouldn't have come up to the amount of uh, the amount of money that would be anywhere near your tax free allowance uh, ok mm. but um, what about what about the teachers who are giving we grinds? also did them by it's the way Michael we also did them in college to the Vits de Paul as well mm. uh, which wasn't paid at all ok um, yeah. so, so but the point was very, and, and very good and, and I, I don't mean to be asking you about your tax affairs but I do mean to be asking uh, about teachers who are working after hours giving grinds uh, and are being paid cash in hand well they're they're they're, they're obliged to pay taxes no doubt yeah about but are they uh, i mean you know they're not i don't know oh yeah well I you know, know that of course you do well, well i don't know no. i mean te- mm. teachers are going to have to make tax returns every year if they're giving grinds i mean that's that goes without saying and the revenue will find you fairly quickly if you're not uh, how are they but sure, they won't know you're giving grants. The revenue, man, the revenue you call into somebody's house or somebody calls on social media now. I mean, they have they have access to bank accounts now at this mm. point as well. They have, they have access to everything. I think it's it's very hard to escape the clutches of the revenue. Mm. And look, that is something. If teachers are giving grants, then absolutely they have to make tax returns. That's, that's, that's basic. Well, they're supposed to. That's the basic part. But the reality is, is that they're giving grinds and they're not paying tax. I mean, I think most people who've paid for their children's grinds would argue that. They pay cash. Well, I mean, they can pay cash, but the teacher is obliged certainly to record that and to make sure that the tax return is, 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 is put in. There's no doubt about that. Mm. You don't believe that's, that's the case, though, really, do you? Well, I don't know whether it's the case or not, but I mean, I trust the revenue. Well, I mean, as Fianna Fáil spokesperson on education, I, I think it's a, 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 a question that um, you might consider looking at and maybe asking revenue if uh, they have a, a, additional income declared by teachers. I, I've absolutely no difficulty asking the revenue mm. that, but I mean, my message to, to teachers out there who are doing grinds is that they were required to put in a tax return, and I suspect quite a few of them probably are, because the revenue are very active on social media, they're very active in the what would have been the old classifieds or, or how these things are done. Mm. Uh, there are now more and more 
I suppose, official grinds places going on now. And I mean, that's all done, uh, I would imagine, through PAYE, through tax, whatever. Like, I mm. mean, it's not possible to open up a grinds academy and and not and not have your tax affairs in order. Mm. And if it's been done informally... Well, an awful um, lot of it is done informally, and that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Well, yeah, well, the, the, mm. the, the revenue obviously have, have severe enforcement powers and you are obliged under pain of criminal sanction to put in your mm. tax returns, as simple as that. But I mean, but, but the point I was making, Michael, was that you know, I when I was mm. in college, I did them that way and I did them with the Vincent de Paul around Trinity College in the... In the Pier Street area. Uh, and what and was that? You, did, 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 just explain what happened uh, through St. Vincent de Paul, that you uh, gave grinds uh, to children who didn't have to pay for them. That St. Yeah, Vincent in the local area around yeah. Trinity, yeah. Oh, very good, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and and that's, the, way, that's still going on. Is it, yeah. There's, lots of, there's mm. lots of that going on around the place in, with college as well. But I, I, there was definitely a difference because some of those kids needed it. Mm. Uh, in other cases, kids didn't need it. Uh, but the parents, my point, what, my point is that the parents want to do the best for the child and there's a pressure out there uh, to get grinds. And sometimes in my experience and it's a long long time ago I'm not sure if anyone's looking for grinds Michael it's, not that, it's, it's 20, not that long ago go on 20 something <laughs> yeah. years yeah. but um, mm. um, it's it's certainly my experience that some, some, some kids didn't need them um, and the parents were simply trying to do the best for the child so it's about changing that mentality and the only way you can do that is to make sure our schools are obviously fully resourced and teachers are you know able to mm you know, teach the subjects in terms of the class sizes, in terms of having the resources in the department. That's the way to do it. And just a general thing there. But there certainly are children from, from, from disadvantaged areas who could certainly do it with the extra help. And one way the state can do that outside of Grimes is to make sure the pupil-teacher ratio is lower in, in disadvantaged schools. And it is uh, but we need to make further progress on that. OK, well, the politicians are back to school, if you like, uh, next week. Fianna Fáil meeting uh, this week, uh, of course, uh, Sinn Féin meeting today. And uh, uh, I'm sure everybody is biting at the bit after the long summer break uh, to get back to business. And it'll be a, a busy term. Undoubtedly, it'll be dominated by Brexit. Or do you think otherwise? Uh, the doll will be dominated by Brexit and the budget, I think. I think they're the two things, and one is kind of dependent on the other, or mm. at least the budget is, is mm-hmm. going to be focused on Brexit. Um, Brexit, I suppose, in, in all likelihood, is going to happen. Um, and we don't know whether there'll be a deal or no deal at this stage. So I suppose our, our main strategy in Fianna Fáil is to make sure that the entire of what we do and the entire of our focus is on the national interest. What is the best interest of this country? Uh, at this particular time, and that is giving the government space uh, to, to be involved with the European Union and carrying out the negotiations to ensure that you know Brexit that's happening happens in the way that's I suppose most advantage most advantageous to this country, mm. um, and that, that that that's our entire focus. So we we haven't been engaging in political games or that type of thing, which I suppose we could have been doing. Should the budget um, be delayed? But I don't think it can. I think right. when the, there, there, there's timetables there under European law in terms of when the budget has to happen under the financial cycle that's in there. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure that it can be. Um, but I think it's going to be it's going to be basically done on the basis of an of 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 of, of no, no deal. deal yeah. mm-hmm. um, so there's the, there's there's little scope in terms of um, you know to play with I suppose in terms of budgetary. But uh, the, the ability of the government to okay. give out goodies or whatever. Okay. Um, but the but the truth is. Uh, that the dangers of Brexit are so profound to the economy in terms of job loss, in terms of just utter disruption, one, a one-time major disruption to our economy that we just have to keep everything on an even keel, uh, get this budget through, and then probably in the new year at some point then there'll be an election. But in the meantime, our focus is on making sure that the national interest is as well-served as can possibly be because 
this is extremely choppy waters that we're entering into. Okay, well we'll uh, continue on that theme presently but we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on education, Thomas Byrne, a TD in Mideast. Michael Reed on LMFM. Will you have more or less money in your pocket next year? Will your parents be able to get a hospital bed? Will your children be in oversized classrooms? And will you be driving on roads uh, that have potholes in them or not? Uh, Well, these are some of uh, the things that uh, the budget for next year will try to address. And much of it will be impacted by Brexit. As Thomas Byrne told us a moment ago, it appears as though the government will be preparing for a no-deal Brexit. And if it is a a no-deal Brexit, it could leave a major hole in the government's budget. This is according to the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which says that it may be necessary to cut spending or raise taxes to prevent debt ratios from rising. And that this is even before the potential customs infrastructure and supports to hard-hit sectors are considered. Let's talk about this uh, with Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. And, uh, a very good morning to you, Sean. Good morning, Michael. for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Um, should the government be preparing uh, its budget on the basis that there won't be a deal? Yes. I think that's the sensible thing to do and to prepare with caution rather than take risks that might then bounce back on them subsequently. However, in doing uh, that and in in recognising that there could be a crash-out Brexit that would be quite seriously damaging, uh, they have to take care with the choices they make Mm. because at the end of the day, we were in a similar situation uh, 10 years ago and uh, with with the crash that we faced. And at that time, we made the wrong decisions. We decided to prioritise banks and the vulnerable suffered dramatically and unnecessarily. We lost far more jobs than we needed to lose. The approach we used, and that was used by many of the countries in the European Union, um, was, was, is now recognised to have been the wrong approach. In other words, that priority was given to austerity rather than uh, to ensuring that we maintain the jobs we could maintain and so on. And as a result, an awful lot of skills, for example, in the construction industry in Ireland were lost. And um, that, that's a kind of a, 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 a serious challenge, if you like. So we should not uh, repeat that mistake. And it, it appears as though that's what the government is going to do. The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, is reported this morning to be bringing a, a memo uh, to Cabinet, which will be meeting uh, to uh, suggest taking exactly that uh, approach. But if he was to take the other approach and prepare... Uh, for a deal, uh, well then there would have to be a supplementary budget uh, to undo the mistakes. Uh, Should there be a supplementary budget if there is a deal and we've prepared for no deal? He doesn't need to have a supplementary budget if if he structures the budget in the first place in a manner that leaves him the option of spending additional uh, money if it becomes available in a, in a much more benign scenario, mm. if you like. Now, interestingly enough, Michael, um, Michelle Murphy and myself from Social Justice Ireland met the minister yesterday, and uh, we had a discussion with him about some of these issues mm. and about the budget. Principally, it was about the budget, and we were uh, and we were saying to him like that Brexit obviously is a huge challenge uh, but it's not the only thing that's out there one Mm. the second thing is 
uh, he he wasn't telling us that he what he's going to do today today with the cabinet, but at the same time, uh, it was clear enough to us that that was the direction he was heading in, and we were saying exactly what we're saying to you now: uh, protect the vulnerable should be the guiding motif of the budget, and then uh, do it in such a way that you have the capacity if there is a more benign Brexit that happens, mm. then uh, he would have other options. Remember, Brexit, though, no matter what, how good it is, is still going to hit Ireland quite quite hard. Mm. The question basically is how hard it actually goes to, start to, 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 to hit it, if you like, because, the, at, you know, while Ireland is doing very well at a surface level and there's a lot of economic growth and we're close to full employment and so on, a closer analysis of the situation shows really big problems. For example, we have a housing crisis with rising levels of homelessness. We have a two-tier healthcare system with long waiting lists. We have serious issues around whether the the approach being followed on a whole range of issues is actually sustainable. Mm. And I think in a way, um, it's very important that government realise that and, and act on the basis that at the end of the day, uh, their business is not about maximizing the benefits to one or other uh, com- uh, sector in Irish society, but like recognizing that they have a responsibility as a government in a budget uh, to, to bring in a budget that will support the development of all in a sustainable manner going forward. And that's, for example, they have to deal with the issue of the implications for agriculture mm-hmm. in rural Ireland. They have to deal with the issue of business and the fact that it, it is having difficulties or will have difficulties with transportation and the issue of the land bridge is no longer there or if it's a much slower process uh, that all of that has to be dealt with there's also the third issue which is like that there will be um, tariffs of one kind or another they mightn't come on on day one but they'll be coming quite soon and no tariffs <laughs> on the other hand this was the eye-watering figure that was presented yesterday if there is a, a, a no-deal Brexit there'll be a return to duty-free shopping, which could lead to a loss of €350 million Euro to the Exchequer. That's right. I suppose, in a way, that tells you the kind of level of uh, duty-free that, that, mm. uh, that that's actually out there uh, and the amount of money that gets spent on it. But if that's the hit that gets taken, or that that, 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 that implies, then that's the hit that that implies. Um, the interesting thing in this is that at the moment... With, uh, without any uh, change of any kind, uh, the government is likely to have about 2.8 billion, according to itself. It's a summer statement, um, it's the summer, summer economic statement that was published there in, at the end of June uh, by, by the Minister uh, for Finance. Uh, it says about 2.8 billion, of which 2.1 billion, something of that nature, is already committed. Mm. So that's about 700. However, in our analysis, which we have discussed previously on this program, uh, in which we look much more closely at the actual figures in the budget, we have identified out quite an amount of additional money that is available and will be available on budget day for the minister. Now, well, that's if you want to much. collect it. Uh, no, sorry? That's if you want to collect it. No, no, no. Some of it will be very simple. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, if, 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 if the way they calculate this 2.8 billion, mm. it actually has them indexing all the various uh, bands and rates and so on, which they don't do at all mm. in practice. So that gives them about another seven, 800 million. So like he already says he has 700, we can give him another seven or eight hundred on top of that before he even starts work, if you like. And there's a number of other things that we have pointed out in our uh, budget choices briefing. That's available, by the way, on our website if anybody wants to check the detail because all the numbers are there. But the issue is 
that he will have a fair amount of money for distribution. And we're basically saying none of that should go on tax cuts. Uh, what should happen is that there should be a, a serious look at putting that the money that's available into it, uh, protecting the vulnerable, promoting investment because we need investment badly. And uh, we need investment particularly because a lot of the investment money is actually going at the moment. It's the, num- the numbers look good, but they're actually going particularly to the, to the children's hospital, for example. Mm. And there is a huge issue around broadband that will have to be rolled out as well and will, will cost serious money in terms of investment So from, uh, the, from the public purse. So there's, like, we have to take a look at, or the government needs to take a look at social housing, for example, and if they don't put, roll that out, there's a real problem. Mm. They also need to look at the issue of the sustainability of uh, what happens in rural Ireland, because broadband isn't the only thing there. They're talking about, uh, we'll say, the, the whole change, we'll say that climate change and carbon and so on is going to demand of uh, the agriculture and if that's the case, we need to be working now and working much more intensely than we are at looking at alternatives that will give livelihoods to people who live in rural Ireland and give livelihoods to farmers that are livelihoods that are sustainable over the long term and viable as well over the long term so that it is actually possible to, 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 to develop an agricultural model uh, that isn't dependent on, on uh, driving up the uh, carbon footprints that, are, that need to be addressed if we're and, and, and reversed if we're going to deal with uh, the climate uh, issue that, okay. that the world itself is facing. Well, I'm not sure that'll make you very popular this morning, Sean. Uh, but um, there are other factors as well, such as uh, the overspending in some sectors like health in particular. That's true. And for several years, as you know, and we've discussed here before, we have been pointing out that the government is over committing like it, it, in, the, in the health area it, it basically says it's going to do A, B and C but then it does not allocate mm. sufficient money to do that or if it is allocating sufficient money for that it's not actually allocating sufficient money just to maintain the, the present uh, level of service that's out there for example uh, in, in, the, in the present level of service uh, if there was to be no change whatsoever in the in, uh, in, or no new initiative introduced at all in the budget for health you'd still see growth in the expenditure why? Because the population is growing. Not alone is it growing, but older people numbers are growing quite dramatically. And that shouldn't be seen as a problem. It should be seen as a tremendous achievement that people are living longer uh, and that they're, they're able to live out their lives. But that means, in effect, that the budget has to be structured in such a way and the money mm-hmm. has to be allocated to ensure that the services are there for such people to, uh, if particularly for example, if they want to uh, be supported uh, at home mm-hmm. and then eventually, if they, if they need access to the fair deal so that they can actually get yeah. access to or, it. Or claim unemployment benefit uh, and there's the cost of uh, paying out the dole plus uh, administrating it uh, as well because if we're looking at uh, 40,000 job losses or 100,000 job losses, uh, that will have a, a serious impact on everything. That, that's true. Um, it, it won't be as big as it might sound. Uh, on the welfare side, it'll be, there'll be all sorts of other bills as well, of course. Mm. But, but on the welfare side... Uh, two things. Uh, you have to obviously cover if people become unemployed, they have to be looked after properly. But the second issue is that uh, we need to re- recognise as a country that the level that social welfare is at, uh, if there was no increase, we'll say, uh, next year in, in, in the welfare payment, that would mean that everybody who's depending on welfare, 
uh, that includes older people and people unemployed and people who are ill and all that, all of them would see their standard of living fall. Why? Because the actual cost of living is growing. So you have to be able to keep pace with that. And we have mapped out what's required. Now, uh, this mightn't make me too popular either, uh, Michael, but like... Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. to, to You're on a roll is, now. <laughs> I'm on a roll, yeah, right. Well, but the actual... Yeah. Uh, uh, if, if we were to maintain the current value of welfare, it requires a €9 Euro a week increase. Oh, God, and think. if that were the case, that, that, that's what's required to roll it out. So mm. at the moment they're talking, they might give five to some and uh, I think some are demanding five for everybody. But remember, even getting five means that they're not going to be keeping pace uh, with the yeah. rising cost of living. And, and I think that's they, a critical they, issue. And if they get five uh, in March, it'll turn out to be three over the course of a, a year. Precisely. Although okay. I suppose in the longer run it stays in place so at yeah. least it's something, you know. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, this discussion gets underway now uh, with uh, the budget about a, a month from now and uh, the return of uh, the doll next week but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning Father Sean Healy Director of Social Justice Ireland Michael Reed on LMFM Now around uh, 20 meat processing plants in uh, the country are said to have ceased processing already 3,000 workers have been temporarily laid off and this is a situation set to worsen with no resolution in sight. Dennis Gormley, industrial organiser with SIPTU's manufacturing division, is on the line. Good morning to you, Dennis, and uh, thanks morning, for joining us. How concerned are you today? We are extremely concerned for our members, Michael. Almost 3,000 of our members who, who have either been laid off or are facing layoff by the end of the week. We see this as an unsustainable situation for our members, who for the most part are low-paid and face precarious working conditions at the best of times. Um, we, we're calling on Minister Creed to immediately set up a task force of all relevant stakeholders in the industry to find a resolution to the current impasse. Do you support the farmers in uh, the blockades or the protests uh, that they've been staging, or do you oppose them? We respect the right of people to, pro- to peaceful protest, Michael. We understand that there are concerns facing the farmers who are who are running these protests. We believe that all working people should be able to earn a living from their work. The farmers are claiming that they cannot make a living, mm. that they're actually making a loss from their work. The factories say they haven't been peaceful protests, that they've been illegal blockades. Uh, does SIPTU have a position on that? As I say, we, we we support people's right to have uh, to peacefully protest. Does that include blockading uh, access and egress? That would not be our position. You don't support that? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but uh, if the farmers are to hold peaceful protests, to be asking people not to pass their picket... Um, it, it's not a picket in, in the sense of the Industrial Relations Act 1990, which it sets out the, the, the legal status of a picket. Um, as I say, we support people's right to hold a peaceful protest. Yeah, but if other farmers break the picket, the farmers who are protesting uh, will consider them scabs. And that's may well be a question for the farmers' organisations rather than ourselves who mm. represent the workers. It is, but it, it highlights how complicated and how divided this whole issue is, doesn't it? Indeed, it's a complex issue. 
it is a complex issue, and that's why we're calling on the minister to immediately set up a task force of all relevant stakeholders to attempt to find a resolution to the current impasse. Do you uh, feel, uh, or are you worried at all, uh, that your members may be uh, pawns in the middle of all of this? Uh, do you believe uh, the factories, uh, when they say they can no longer continue processing, or are they using it as a, a bargaining tool? I'm, I'm not sure that they're used as a pawn. The, I, I, some people may regard them as collateral damage, but these are 3,000 human beings who are currently... Uh, earners in households won't be able to pay their bills in the coming days and weeks. But but, but but are the factories uh, deciding not to process or do they not have the meat to process? Do they not have the raw material or, or, or are they letting on so that they can put pressure on the farmers? Well, the factories are claiming that they cannot get, uh, mm. get raw material to process. And do, that's the situation. That that is what they're claiming. I suppose yeah. my question is: Do you believe them? Well, currently there are no animals there to process, to process, and that's the reason why our members are laid off. Mm. If that is the case, uh, there's going to be no meat on the shelves pretty soon, and uh, that could lead to other job losses. Indeed, and and this affects a whole range of businesses through the logistics, through uh, moving into retail. And distribution, and these are these are issues that are going to have a ripple effect throughout the whole industry and the whole food chain. Mm. As you say, uh, the protests are, are not fit uh, pickets considered to deemed uh, defined as pickets under the Industrial Relations Act. Uh, SIPTU, uh, obviously, uh, an organisation, a trade union that uh, is uh, very off-fay with industrial relations, uh, uh, and uh, I'm sure that as a, an organisation, you and other trade unions could bring some skills to this dispute uh, in terms of trying to negotiate a settlement. Well. To a degree, we're, we're not a party to the dispute. However, if a task force, as we're suggesting, was set up and we were invited to attend, we'd have no objection in attending and participating. And what about your members? Uh, I take it they've no ground to stand on, that they're left high and dry in all of this. This is the situation that our members are left with, with, with no income and no depending on social welfare. And that, that situation is unsustainable. In, in the short term. And what about the long term? Well, if this continues in the long term, it's questionable, will there be a meat industry? Mm. If, if, if and, uh, farmers aren't supplying and processors aren't processing, what situation does that leave? Okay. And, and these are the questions mm. that, that need to be addressed. And we feel that there, that Minister Creed has an, an obligation to set up such a task force to deal with this immediately. But we would believe, and we, what we have seen in, in similar situations where thousands of workers have been laid off, be it the situation in, in Bordnamona or Aer Lingus or where big factories have closed down in the past, that all political parties of all hues, that all uh, chambers of commerce, etc., and all stakeholders are immediately driven towards a task force mm. That's called by the government. And just, ju- 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 just very briefly, please, Dennis. Uh, what about Europe? What about uh, the commissioner? Should Phil Hogan I- intervene while he's uh, still uh, the agriculture commissioner? Given that one of the big obstacles here is European competition law. 
that is true. Well, and and the competition law and the question comes, Michael, does the competition law that exists does that block a sustainable beef industry in Ireland? Mm. And, and again, that is a political question that needs to be addressed by the stakeholders in the industry. Okay, I have to leave it there. Listen, thanks very much uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Much appreciated. Dennis Gormley, industrial organiser with SIPTU's Manufacturing Division, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 